Um, today's scripture reading is taken from 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 to 21. <laughs> I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we... And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is God's word. Thank you, Samantha, for reading God's Word for us. I'm just going to do a little equipment check. I am uh, grateful to be back with you, and if it's okay, just before I enter into God's Word, I want to give a bit of an advert. Uh, this, believe it or not, is the last Sunday in which we will be in this little letter of First John. We have been in First John now for 20 weeks. And in the coming four weeks, we will be entering into a short series on Advent, all taken from the book of Psalms. I know you'll want to be here for that little series. It's fascinating to me because every one of these Psalms that we will deal with are written by a king, a king that was celebrated by all of Israel because he had united the kingdom. He was a glorious conqueror, and yet for some reason, this king still longed for somebody else, another king. So in the next four weeks leading up until Christmas, we will be discussing the coming king, the king who comes at Christmas. So as we enter into his word, I'd like to invite you to keep your finger in 1 John chapter 5. Uh, we will have a lot to say. By the way, there's the outline in your ministry guide. That's always the outline I give to give you the freedom to, to write down whatever God says to you. But there are six points in my outline, meaning again, you'll have to listen quickly, meaning again, in our service, we will only be scratching the surface of this amazing text, the confidence that we can have in knowing God who is our life. And so for those of you who want to dig deeper, let me promote our CG ministry because there are several, many actually of our CGs that use the preaching text as their curriculum. So if you'd like to ask more questions, join a CG that is covering the same topic. You can ask questions, you can interact with God's Word and each other, or just write one of the pastors. Let's pray together. Father God, we pray that you would find in us this morning open ears, and thirsty hearts. We thirst, O oh God, not because we are hoping to hear the opinion of a foreign preacher. We thirst for a word from the almighty King of creation. 
So God, speak to us today. May we be a people who openly listens, longs to obey the King of glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I uh, have come to realize that we live in a day and age where uncertainty is kind of embraced. You know, it's actually not that cool to have strong convictions about things. It is more acceptable if we're open to everything. Like, I'm okay, you're okay. We all are just kind of blindly finding our way through life. And in the past 20 years, there has been something that's happening in our world that has created more uncertainty. There are websites being created by the hundreds that exist to promote opinions, but present themselves as news websites. And so now today we have a situation in which world leaders are quoting opinion sites as if it's news and pointing to real news and calling it fake, which creates a broad uncertainty in the world. We don't know what is true. In, in, in fact, it is really unpopular if you're the kind of person who draws conclusions like, if you draw a conclusion, then the suggestion is you have looked at something that is inferred and have made it definitive. For example, that girl has a tattoo. Clearly, she is a gangster. That's drawing conclusion that may or not, may or not, may or may not be true just because of something that's inferred. So we're often told, hey, don't jump to conclusions, meaning don't judge, you don't have all the information yet, be uncertain, because that is the fashion today, to be uncertain. I'm so grateful that John had another view, because he wrote to a persecuted church that existed in an uncertain day. And in all the world of uncertainty, he came to some conclusions. He wrote the church saying, you are and can definitely know some things. By the way, this is uh, Josh Gressel. He's a well-known PhD psychiatrist, clinical psychiatrist. He lives in the San Francisco Bay Area. And he actually writes for a magazine that is now both hard copy and online, that the magazine is called Psychiatry Today or Psychology Today, and, and he recently celebrated his 60th birthday. Yes, he, and he also wrote the book on envy, uh, taking something that generally is accepted to be not good and saying, actually, it's good. You, you know, you can find spiritual treasure in envy because why? It motivates you to get stuff that other people have. You know, it's immigrant, immigrant motivation to, to work hard, to get stuff that other people have and you don't have. It's affirmed in my culture, and he's just confirmed it in a book. And, and recently, upon celebrating his 60th birthday, he was looking at his life, thinking of all the people he had counseled, all his study on the brain, how it functions, how it controls the emotions. And he began to think to himself, man, the longer I'm in this science of the mind, the more I feel like I don't know anything. And so in a recent blog, 
in Psychology Today, he wrote this, What do we really know for sure? And the subtitle is, Why it makes sense not to believe anyone about anything, including me. I am so grateful that John didn't have his PhD in psychology. Because John wrote a church in despair, a church that suffered with insecurities and uncertainties, and he said, here's some things you can absolutely know. And the first one is this, you can know that you have life. Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe, meaning all the things that have preceded this sentence. I wrote all of those things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. It's very similar to how he began this passage, this letter in his book. The first paragraph of 1 John, he said this in verse 4, and we are writing these things, meaning all the things that follow this statement, so that our joy may be complete. Now, there's something fascinating about John and the early apostles. They considered themselves not just to be disciples, not just to be missionaries, but they considered themselves to be spiritual fathers of the early church. That's why we call them the apostolic father. And that's also why John's favorite term of address to the church was not brothers and sisters. It wasn't even beloved. It was little children. Now, now, I guarantee you that there is no parent sitting in this room this morning that is hoping and praying that their children will one day grow up and be insecure and uncertain. Parents' joy is fruited out when they see their children being decisive. When they see their children making bold choices, taking on life with certainty, parental joy fruits out when we see our children have confidence, when we see that they know what they know and live life well. That's why John is saying, I'm writing these things not so that you can hope you have life or that you can pray that you have life because Parents who see children who are insecure and indecisive, that is a prayer request. Pray for my kids because they don't know what they're going to do in life. Graduating without any plan. Pray for them. John didn't write this so he could increase his prayer life. He wrote this so that God's people, his children, could be full of divine confidence you can know this you have life then secondly you can know this he hears and he heals this is verses 14 and 15 and this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will he hears us and if he know that he if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask we know that we have the requests that we have asked from Him. Now, if you're not careful, if you pull this text out of its context, you are likely to create a half-truth 
in order to comfort people in a very popular message. And that is just say it, and God is obligated to give you what you ask. If you just say this thing, whatever it is, God wants to give it to you. That's how much power you have. Sometimes we call that name it and claim it theology. Blab it and grab it. But that is not what John is saying. Because remember, basic understanding of Scripture tells me I need to let the text stay in the context of that passage. He is not saying, Ian, whatever you want, that new iPad Pro, just ask God and He will give it to you. He hears you. This verse in its own context asks us to pray with godly confidence for something very specific that is shared in the very next verses. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. Christian, you are not perfect. You are going to sin. There is no sanctified wrongdoing. All wrongdoing is sin. There is sin that leads to death. I don't say pray for that. But there is a sin that does not lead to death. Now what in the world? There is a specific prayer and to to which this confidence applies. And that is what we talked about several weeks ago. The prayer for the one who has offended you and God. The prayer that Jesus prayed when he hung painfully between the offense and the judgment of God. When he cried out, oh Lord forgive them. It is the ministry that we are called to. The ministry of reconciliation. When on that cross... Our position was changed from objects of wrath to objects of affection. He then gave us an assignment. The assignment is the ministry of reconciliation. God have mercy. Some of you, I hope, have been praying that prayer in these next past few weeks. God have mercy. Don't ask God, make that person realize how he's offended me and come and ask my forgiveness. That's a pagan prayer. A Christ-like prayer, the prayer that you can have confidence that God longs to answer is a prayer for reconciliation. Pray that prayer. God longs to answer it. You see, there is this Jewish tradition. It's not just Jewish, it's also pagan. That every prayer required a mediator, a holy man, a priest, That's why in Jewish tradition, there was the Holy of Holies, a place so holy, people would be consumed if they went into the presence of a holy, almighty God. The holy place was separated by a thick curtain that that took several men to move. And only one man, the high priest, went into that place once a year. He went in for one reason only, and that is to pray, God, forgive them. They know not what they do. And just in case the holiness of God consumed that unholy, holy priest, 
That man, according to Jewish tradition, had a red sash tied around his ankle and bells that hung around his waist. If he fell, the bells went off. And the rest of the priests pulled the body out of the Holy of Holies. That's the real deal. This is the courage prayer takes. We are called now, as His Spirit resides in the believer, to enter that holy place and plead, God, have mercy. Restore this brother. Restore this sister. That is our assignment. That is us being mediators as His priests to make peace with God. And because of the work of mediation Christ did on the cross, because at that moment the temple curtain was torn in two, because He resides in His people, we have been given that work. You can know this. That God will answer that prayer. He waits to hear that prayer so that our brothers may be restored. And then third, if that is true, that means I can recover from my own failures. That means my self-inflicted wounds can be healed. I can recover from my self-propagated personal disasters. Because of the cross, my bad decisions do not have to be terminal. Verse 18, he says this, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. By the way, don't think I've missed out that unforgivable sin. We're going to get to it. Everyone who has been born of God does not keep sinning. This is a characteristic, as Eugene shared last week, of someone who has reached out and grabbed that life preserver. It's a characteristic of those, as he shared, have come to believe what God says about His Son. It means we do not keep on sinning. Sin doesn't become an addiction. It doesn't become a habit. We can know this. So, we can know this. Why? Because the one who is born of God, meaning Jesus Christ Himself, protects us and the evil one does not touch us. How does that happen? We'll talk about it in a moment. First of all, I need to ask you a question. This, this is when you get to participate in your mind. I'm not going to ask you to shout out your answer. This is the best picture I could find of someone troubled over something. I'd like for you to think for, for just a moment. Don't, you don't need to share with your neighbor. And I know this seems counterintuitive in church because the pastor is going to ask you to think right now about the sin that most offends you. What, what is that sin that you see at and you're, you're most offended by it? And, and I get it. It's difficult for you. In fact, some of you are so offended, your stomach is turning. In fact, personally, you're offended that the pastor would even ask you to think about that sin because you're just that sanctified. If, and, and here's, here's what I'm going to ask you. You got that sin in your head? If that sin is so offensive, why is it so popular? 
You, you see, the problem with sin is not that it's so horrific. It's not that sin is so abhorrent. The problem with sin is it's so attractive. That is the problem. Now, Eugene introduced him to you last week, so I'm going to mention him again. Samuel Clemens or Mark Twain. Uh, there he is. He was growing his hair for missions. Uh, Mark Twain was a very witty American writer, an astute observer of culture. And as he observed culture that was predominantly influenced by Christianity, his heart bent sour toward the church. And here's what he said about Ian's view on the sin that offends Ian. Nothing needs reforming more than other people's habits. Here's what I'm saying to you. I am willing to guess that that sin you just now dared think of that offends you more than anything else is actually the sin that somebody else has, but you don't. I'm, I'm willing to guess because you see offense over someone else's sin is evidence that you have a moral compass that's being offended by somebody else. But offense, horror by my own sin is evidence that I have a holy God living in me and grieving at my sin. This is why believers cannot keep sinning. Because when I sin, Jesus grieves in me. The offense I feel at my own sin is the offense of a holy God who cannot tolerate a cluttered temple. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? It is His grief that protects me from allowing sin to become addictive in me. It is important that we know this, that we can have this confidence that when we fail, it's not terminal. Get up and start walking again away from the thing that offends a holy God and toward His embrace. And because we can have this confidence, because He provides us with that resurrected Christ protection, we are free. We are free of the power of the evil one. Scripture says in verse 19, we know that we are from God. Meaning, when we became objects of God's affection, He prepared us to be stewards of that same affection. We became, remember, His ambassadors. And this building, therefore, became what? The embassy of the King of creation. For those who are in trouble, for those who need sanctuary, to run into and find safety and comfort and healing. We are from God. 
sent by him not to gather in big groups and congratulate one another, but to enter into the broken, hurting world with his peace and affection. He has made us for this very thing. The whole world, sorry, we need to go back one, lies in the power of the evil one. Now, that, that word power is not the word you would ex expect. It doesn't mean they lie in the strength. Isn't that Greek word dunamis, dunamis which we get our English word dynamite for? It's not that word. It's actually far more graphic than our English translation. Literally, if we were to translate this, we would say the entire cosmos is lying in the painful grip of the evil one. That's why, Christian, your moralizing does not help your non-Christian friend. When you point out to her that she's got problems in her life, it does not help her. Because when you're in the powerful, painful grip of a spiritual being, you are unable to say, oh, I get it, then I'm going to stop. Okay, I get it, then I'm going to change myself. Christianity is not a self-help group. It's not a 12-step program. It is a loving God finding me in the painful grip of the evil one and by His power, by His authority, breaking that grip and placing me in the, heart, in the hand of a loving God. He has broken that grip. We can know that. Why? Because we can also know the truth. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Meaning, He has given us unique spiritual insight into God. Insight that has changed everything those first believers believed about God. When God came to them with this insight broke the grip of the evil one, suddenly for the first time in their lives, they stopped looking at God through the lens of the law and starting look, started looking at God through the lenses of the love of Christ. That's why we look at God through the lens of Jesus. He is the clearest picture we have of God. Some of you who get offended by Christians, stop looking at God through the lens of Christians. Stop looking at God through the lens of judgment. Look at God through the lens of Jesus, your Savior, who came so that He could die so that we could live. That is the insight he has given. We can know the truth because we know the one who is true. Remember, truth is not a concept. Truth is a person. And that is why in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 20, the Lord said, I am your life. He didn't say, I'm your God. He said, I'm your life. 
Outside of me, there is no living. That's why Christians die different. Because we see the grave as just a, another process of life. I pass through the grave of my mother's womb into this life, and one day I'm going to pass through the grave of whatever, whatever my children decide, cremation, a hole in the dirt. I will die and keep on living. You can know this. Because he is our life and length of days. Or as Eugene put it last week, he is our life preserver. I, I've had to use one of those once in my life. And I will tell you that once I had grip on that life preserver and slipped it over me, I stopped hanging on. It, it just carried me. Just no effort, stopped kicking my legs, stopped gasping, just started resting. So I don't know what's going on in your life right now. Maybe your, your, your work team is a mess. Maybe you're feeling the stress of just living in a broken and fallen world. Maybe you've had unexpected health issues. Stop kicking. You can know this. Jesus is your life. Rest in Him. Now is the time to rest. We are in Him who is true. One day, I will be found in Him, the resurrected Christ. That's why we baptize as we do, to show the picture of life and death and resurrection we go into this grave, we go under, we come up again to demonstrate the truth that we can know. And finally, he is God and I am not. Just a reminder, verse divisions that we have in our Bibles say they're not divine. They, they were actually developed in the 16th century by a man named Robert Estienne. They're helpful so that we can find certain places in the Bible, but they weren't placed there by divine purpose. So I just happen to believe it would make a better verse division if we read these two verses together. He is, or Christ is, the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. I do this because it's often thought that that last verse is like an arbitrary add-on. doesn't seem to be connected with the context. But it is. They are connected. He is the true God. You are not. Remember the teaching, that the threat within the church that John was writing to? It was through the internal damage of the Antichrist, not just against Jesus, but replacing Jesus. Men who said, hey, you know, God is kind of silent, but follow me. Full of this dynamic spirit. I can lead you. No need to question me. I'll bring you the truth. I'll be the sole mediator of truth. That is the Antichrist. Little children, stay away from that. Stay away from the temptation to remake God in your image so suddenly you understand Him. 
Distill him down in a way that finite minds can comprehend. Avoid being that guy. Don't replace Christ. Because no man, not even your best loved pastor, can replace Christ. Can give you life. Fill you with confidence for this life and the next I don't know if you use the term obituary in Singapore. It, it seems like in Singapore, obituaries are more condolences, and it seems like companies do it in the newspaper. But, but in the West, obituaries is a death notice. It's when we post an announcement to anyone who may have known our parents or loved ones, that person has deceased and then we will usually put a little note of how that person has impacted our life, the joys they left, the heritage they left, just a celebration of that short bit of eternity that we could intersect with them. That's an obituary. I often wonder, are we as believers leaving a, an obituary of godly confidence or not. Several years ago, I was asked by my pastor in Malaysia to go visit a widower, the surviving husband of a long-serving deacon in our church. She was faithful, never missed a meeting as far as I could tell. She served faithfully in the church. But the husband never believed, never came to church, Ne never repented of his sin of self-sufficiency. And so the pastor asked me to go with him to visit the widower and share the gospel before her wake, just to see if in her death he might be open to the gospel. And the conversation was in Mandarin, so our pastor was leading, and I, because I can say 20% and understand 80%. And, and he shared the gospel and said, you know, right now your wife is celebrating in heaven, will live there for eternity. If you would pray this prayer, you could have confidence. You could know that you too will spend eternity with your wife, our sweet sister, go. And even I understood his response. He said, are you telling me that right now my wife is in heaven? And the pastor said with great sincerity, yes, she is. And then he said, in that case, I'm happy to stay right where I am. You, you, you see, even religious people can leave a legacy we don't intend. This is Kathleen Delmo, or Del, Del, sorry, Demlo, um, real person. Uh, this picture is almost as if she's just seen the obituary. Ka Kathleen was an unusual young lady, born in the late 30s. She sought freedom from all the cultural, what she felt were restrictions. She grew up in the Lutheran church, but she didn't like church people. They were stuffy. It's a 50s term for, you know, boring. And, and so she sought to cast off these Restrictions. She kind of liked Jesus, 
But she one time told a friend, the problem with Jesus is he's all about Jesus. And, and see, Kathleen was actually all about Kathleen. And, and so she just kind of threw off anything that would create margins for her. She just went and lived the life that she wanted to live. She married the first guy who asked her. Then she just lived with freedom. And a friend at her funeral recalled asking her one time at a party where they had both had a little too much sauce. Hey, Kathy, you, you know, you think if God is real, do you think he'd forgive two girls like us? And Kathleen's response is, you never know. Uncertainty. Kathleen Demlo died this year. The last day in May this year. And her children published an obituary in the Redwood Falls Gazette. Here it is. Kathleen Schunk was born March 19, 1938. In 1957, she married Dennis Demlo, with whom she had two children, Gina and Jay. She became pregnant by her husband's brother, Lyle, and moved to California. She abandoned her children, Gina and Jay, who were then raised by her parents. She passed away on May 31st, 2018, and now will face judgment. She will not be missed by Gina and Jay, and they understand that this world is a better place without her. I, I, I don't know about you. But, but I can think of no greater disaster for every generation than th that follows me than a man who informed his children that I'm going to be my own idol. I'm going to act like I rule the world. I'm going to be in charge of my decisions, and I'm going to be unapologetic because, after all, who knows anything? This is why John closed this message with a plea to his people. Little children, keep yourself from man-made gods. Keep yourself from sitting down on a throne that beyond, belongs only to the king of creation. Pursue his pleasure, not your own. Pursue his glory, not your own, and in that way, leave a legacy that you can know will lead to life for your children and every generation that follows. I want to invite you to bow with me just for a moment. As we close this time together, I, I, I want to speak first to those of you who are standing painfully in the gap for someone you love. I mean, most of you know my story. You know for 10 or 15 years, I, I was my own God. And during that time, my mother was praying, weeping at her bed. Some of you are my mother right now. Twenty years later, I overheard a church lady asking my mom, Anne, 
did you ever have any doubts for your son, Ian? And she said, no. Because I asked that prayer for Ian. And God heard. I knew I had what I prayed for. I knew I had what I cried out for. Can you pray with that same confidence? This is John's message to the church. Summed up in one phrase. Little children, don't be Kathleen. You can know. You can be certain. You can be certain that you have life. You can be certain that he hears your pleas and heals. You can recover. Because some of you are me 30 years ago. If you would simply submit to his grief in you and turn away from that mess you found yourself in and fall into his embrace, he will lift you up. He will set you on straight paths. He will equip you to walk, not for your own pleasure, but for His glory. He will free you from the painful grip. You can know this because you have insight. You can know the one who is true, and so you will be found in Him. You can know that you have liberating, life-giving knowledge because He is God. And you are not. This is the confidence you can have today. That this God knows how to answer those prayers. You don't even know how to pray. If you would just open your heart to him now. And in your own heart, let your heart speak. Oh God, I long to know something that is true. In a world of uncertainty, I want to be confident. I want to know that I have life that lasts longer than my heartbeat. Because friends, understand this. It's not that you have a soul. You are a soul that has a body. You have a body that will one day drop off. God, I want to know that I have life. I want to know that you hear and that you heal this broken sister, this broken man. I want to know this insight that gives believers confidence. I want you to be God absolutely in my life. Father God, we are so delighted that you are not the kind of God who waits for us to love you. You loved us first. You are not the kind of God who waits for us to think of you. Before we were born, you knew us in our mother's womb. And you are not the kind of God who waits for us to seek you. You are the God who pursues. And your pursuit has brought each of us here today. 
Father, give us the courage to say yes with confidence. Yes, we turn to you afresh. Be God, glorious, life-giving God in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.